By 2050, 68% of the world's population will be living in urban areas, and the number of slum dwellers will increase to 3 billion. This rapid pace of urbanization threatens to put pressure on existing infrastructure, which exacerbates existing inequalities and in turn leads to the formation of slums. Thank you so much, Zoe, and I'm very happy to be here today. So we're talking about inclusive cities. I'm going to tell you something quickly. I'm a product of that. We don't do the right thing. So my family came from rural area in Kenya. Climate change, drought. They were looking for better opportunities. Where do you go to? You go to a city, Nairobi. They came to the city thinking that the city was inclusive. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> they ended up in the slums called Kibera. I'm Tariq al and this is People and Planet, a podcast from EXO 2020 Dubai's program for People and Planet, where changemakers from all over the world break down what it'll take to create a sustainable future for our planet. My guest today is Kennedy Odede, one of Africa's best-known community organizers and social entrepreneurs. Kennedy grew up in Kenya's Kibera slum, where he experienced firsthand the devastating realities of life in extreme poverty. His experience led him to launch Shining Hope for Communities, or Shafko, an organization that impacts over 2.4 million slum dwellers across 17 urban slums in Kenya. Look around the world. What is happening? The greedy cities, <laughs> I see cities as a, as a human being, they, they just take, take, take. Where you see crime rate, you see violence, because they have to survive. So I hope we're able to create a city that's inclusive, a city that is innovative, a city that knows who feeds it. So that's my story. As one of the hosts of the Inclusive Cities, Last Mile Delivery in Slums and Informal Settlements, which was held as part of Expo 2020 Dubai, we got a chance to speak to Kennedy on why it was important to draw the world's attention to inclusive solutions for building safe, resilient, and sustainable settlements. All right, great. So Kennedy, let's get started. Um, You're a community builder. You're a lifelong learner. You're a social entrepreneur. And you're someone whose entire life is an answer to the question, what does my community need? Um, so please, Kennedy, can you start by just introducing yourself and what's your life mission? <laughs> Thank you so much. So my name is Kennedy Odede and I come from Kibera Slum, which is one of the largest slums in Africa. And uh, yeah, so when I was born, uh, I thought the world was simple, you know, and you look around you, you think that's your world. And there was a lot of poverty around and then I remember when I moved from Kibera, I saw wealth. And I'm like, what? What is happening? 
So coming from a very, very poor family, it was a very challenging life with the life of hopelessness and you are feeling that you are you have no purpose. And then was that great for you as a young man? You became angry and you end up doing things that are not good because you are hopeless. And honestly, I lost a lot of my friends who uh, some of them were killed by the police. Some of them met, committed suicide. And it's because they have no hope. My parents came from a, from a rural area in Kenya, in a western part of Kenya, blindfolded by the idea of the lights in the city. So they thought it was a beautiful place. They'll come get a job. And then you end up know that job. And uh, to make the story short, after going through that, I really found my hope. The idea that, what is life about? I want to use my life to make other people's life better, not to go through what I went through. So I got a job in a factory and I started a, a, a movement of idea of bringing people together with this idea that those who are living that life are the one who can change their life. So that's how Shofko started. They, you can tell the name Shofko comes from Shining Hope for Communities, you know? And I was able to convince women, youth, that this is your movement. And we didn't, I didn't know how to even to speak English well, to be told. I didn't know even how to write proposal. But in my belly, I have that idea that we can bring change. And my mother used to tell me, Kennedy, whoever wears the shoes knows why it pinches. So I told my community that, you know, we live here, we know the challenges, and we can, we, we can lead our transformation. Thank you so much, Kennedy. And you, you know, what was it like for you back then growing up? You know, paint us a picture of the environment you grew up in, the sights, the sounds, the, the feelings. Uh, you know, what was your home like growing up? Yeah, so, so life in Kibera Slam is uh, bittersweet. I have to say that. It, you can't say only one side. At the same time, it is a vibrant community. And I remember how we were taken care of by other people in the community, other women, you know, they were all our mothers, men were all our fathers. And uh, as a kid, Kibera was not that congested. I remember seeing cows coming, passing by Kibera, you know what I mean? As a kid, following them to the dump, where by now is a sewage, you know what I mean? It was a uh, flowing water. I see there was a sound of the train that when it comes, you know, the train bringing people from the factory. And uh, we used to live in 10 by 10. All of us there, most of the time we spend with no food, honestly. So I understand, I understand that feeling of not having something to eat. And I remember as a, as a, as a kid going to the garbage to see what people have thrown away. So everyone is poor in the community, but there are some who can afford food, you know what I mean? And there are some who couldn't get it. And, uh, I, and I remember my mother, uh, she's very powerful in my life because she's a woman of pride. So we used to have this cooking oil, she said, Kennedy. You're looking so uh, so so hungry, so angry. Can you go to the room, to the house there and put the oil in your mouth to look that you've eaten? And, 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 you know, and that was pride, man, you know, and we did, we did that. So it was, it, was, it was a really tough life, you know, and living in a, in a community whereby there is no toilet. You know, that's the thing that really I hated that so much. And I remember in the morning, you have to wake up very early to use that one pit, pit latrine. And what really also makes me sad is that people didn't understand our problems. You know, they were all coming with their solution. Nobody wanted to listen. And uh, what really pained me so much that poverty uh, makes you feel like uh, it, is your, it is your mistake. 
it's not your fault. It was not my fault to grow up in Kibera, you know, in this poor family, you know, that had no hope. You see, so for me, that was the the the, the life. You go to the butchery, you see the meat hanged there, or the or they or they are roasting uh, something called mutura and meat, but you can't afford. And that also was challenging. And I think at the same time, it taught me what is called the self-control. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You're hungry, you can see it, Kennedy, but you can't take it. And and how do you carry all of those complex feelings? Because you're talking about being hungry for nutrition, hungry for change. You're grieving your friends. Um, you're uh, navigating, um, you know, all these very complex emotions at a very young age. You know, how supported did you feel in going through that journey? Um, and also, as you reflect back now, um, as an adult, uh, on those feelings. Everything I went through really built me and uh, defined who I am. And uh, I was a hopeless person. I gave up. And then I remember I, I was literally, I also lived on the street, you know what I mean? So I'm a street man, you know? And I remember not scared of death because what do you want to live for? What do you want to live for? Your life is useless. You're feeling you are nothing. And you are like a refugee in your own country. Your friends are being killed and you're being arrested for nothing and, and nobody. But there was the opening. In my giving up in life, I really loved the story of America, United States, and the story of the struggle of the people of color. And then, I, and then that really was amazing for me because I was looking for something to look at. And then I came across this man called uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And fighting for the rights of the community. And I'm like, wow, they cannot go to this restaurant because they are black, <laughs> you know? So Martin Luther King Jr. really became my role model. And, uh, and uh, I fall into readings. And by reading about his stories, that idea of dreaming. And then what was powerful, he was using his life for others. It was all about him. And that really moved me a lot. So I say, you know what? Okay, so Martin Luther King's story really amazed me. And the idea for him, to use the church, let's be honest, people don't know about that Dr. King, was a, was, a, uh, was a preacher somewhere in the south. And then from that small church, the fire was burning, you know what I mean? And he was preaching things and became bigger than the church, you see? And the church in the state by then for African-American was a place that they felt accepted. So I started thinking about Kennedy, I want to do something like Dr. King. I want to be a small Dr. King in this Kibera, <laughs> you know? I say I can't be a preacher, you know, for, for sure. But what is, what is another thing that my community love? Guess what? We love football, or they call it soccer. So when I got my job in the factory, around 15 years old, I bought a soccer ball. I think it was 20 cents. And, uh, and that soccer ball became our church. We could play this soccer ball and then talk about our issues. Believe me, Shofko was born out of that. Beautiful. That's that's incredible. What what first connected you to to Dr. King? Was there a moment uh, that came across your path that um, Dr. King really became very prevalent in his in his dreams, connected to your dreams? You know, when I was growing up in poverty, I won't lie to you. We used to complain a lot. We complain that we don't like that. Nobody care about us, you know. And Dr. Dr. King was about action. You know what I mean? And the, and then his idea of the dream. I have a dream. You know, I also had a dream of 
kibera you know I mean we can have a small foundation here that one day will have impact you know so right now as i speak to you shofko has an office in new york you know what i mean and for me that was amazing you know when we start a movement in the slum by the people themselves who understand the struggle and then use that as a transformation so i think i, I really got that hope and i feel like uh, for you to to have change in people's life you must change yourself and i think that was the thing i did you know i was i was bad i was a lost soul you know what i mean and i say i will not touch anybody's life until i change myself so i honestly worked on myself and starting as shofko is not just 20 cents no that's be a lie i was struggling looking for light looking for something to do and then you realize something my brother is that uh, what is life and how much money you have if you don't have impact in somebody's life why do you live you know what is the purpose of humanity so for me that was so, so much powerful and i said to myself god i want to use my life and never i end up to now I'm not regretting that the life i get and the connection and the opportunity i will use it to make people's life better how can we be like a candle you light other candles and i think honestly for me that's how we live after death <laughs> you know what I mean? maybe i'm crazy you know <laughs> and and you are answering that question that god is asking you what are you doing with your life and it's and it's really serving that light thank you so much for being that that embodiment and i'm really inspired by you know when you talked about a football uh, being that starting point uh, i also know mangoes are a very important part of your story as well and you talked about the the any i need to and now you talked about the incredible achievements that shafko has really been able to to serve in the community maybe paint us that picture of how do you go from you know a story around a mango a story around a football to the early days of shofko uh and you actually starting up and the activities that you used to conduct you know when i stole that mango in the market and <laughs> they beat me almost to death and i was only really hungry you know what i mean and nobody wanted to know why i stole the mango i was just being judged and i was beaten so this is a man i don't know this man who say hey why are you beating this child this is a child You know, stop. What did he do? He's a thief. Stole what? Mango. How many mangoes? They can't say. You know. So the guy said, "I'll pay those mangoes." You know? And this guy paid it and walked with me. I don't remember him honestly. Even I see him now, I don't know because I was a kid. And I remember asking this man, "Who are you?" And this man told me that I am a good Samaritan. I Huh? You know, that really shocked me that you don't have to know somebody to do something good to them. So that man saved my life. And up to now I don't know that man. I swear to you. If I see him even no I don't know he's the one, you know? So but he left something in me. So what are we learning from this? You never know how many people you are touching their lives with small deeds. And there was another good Samaritan, I believe a priest who gave you that a book uh, that introduced you to Martin Luther King, is that correct? Yeah. So that's about the church in Kibera, there's a Catholic church there. We used to go there and just play basketball around there, you know? and uh, that is how i met uh, the priest and that is also how i got the the book uh, that really kind of also changed my life so i don't think there's one thing that changed my life but I, as i told you before i think there are many many things that were that were happening you know what i mean and uh, there was there was this idea of oh, helplessness feeling useless and i think the first thing is to have well, the pride and because i didn't have mentors so i did something crazy 
as a teenager. So I used to speak to Mandela. <laughs> I know, I know, maybe I'm crazy. I used to speak to Martin Luther King Jr. So when somebody looked down on me, I felt so poor and so, I'd be like, Marcus Gavi, what could you do? You know what I mean? And I get that energy of Marcus Gavi talking to me. You know what I mean? And then that moment I want to talk to Nelson Mandela, you know, and of bringing people together. And I feel like I'm talking to him, you know. And really they became my invisible mentors, you know. And uh, yeah, in my room alone, you know, I used to live in 10 by 10. I didn't have a mattress. I was using a tin lamp. But I loved my silent. But honestly, by finding the love of books, ah, I closed my 10 by 10 room. And I just opened my book. And I'll be with Mandela, you know, in the struggle in South Africa. And I will be like, in that moment, or I'll be with Dr. King in the US, you know what I mean? And, I, and then after that, I also became imagination person. I was just imagining, you know. I remember another story I love was Rosa Parks, who I also love that woman so much, you know what I mean? The idea was to stand up in the bus, you know what I mean? Sitting at the right place. So I said, Kennedy, in this struggle, I also want to stand up and saying that I am not poor, Kennedy. Poverty is a mindset. Poverty is a mindset. I'm not poor. I am also standing up and saying no to poverty. I will make it, not for myself, but for, for, for my community. So you, you can see how those imagination. And it really, oh God, it really built me. And I think it's for that reason that children today are imagining talking to a, an invisible Kennedy or Dede. Uh, I can imagine that that's, uh, that's not happening and you... You also talked about those defining moments and there's, there, there's the, the greatest drug in the world, which is love. Um, and as Shafko gained recognition, you happened to meet your wife, Jessica. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you could tell us uh, maybe a short version of that love story. Tell us you know, how that happened and actually how that started to also shape the work that you're doing at Shafko today. So you have to know, or, okay, this is funny because uh, I was the mayor of Kibera, not elected. Okay, and uh, I used to have uh, one email because I was also the leader of Shofko when Shofko was starting, you know. And Shofko was more like a government of its own. We had a cabinet. I mean, so one day in my in my inbox, I used to check my inbox once a month, and I got an email from this lady who said, "Yeah, I heard about Shofko. What you're doing? I want to come." I'm like, with in my heart, I don't want a white savior. Sorry, I'm being honest. I write and I say, "Thank you so much," you know. Africa for Africans, you know, we are from the community. You don't understand anything about Kibera. You know, thank you so much. You know, and I was so proud, like, yes, I'm Marcus Gavi. Mm, we believe in community by themselves, changing life. My friend, Jessica, not easy. They don't give up. Oh, Kennedy, yes, I don't believe in white civilism. You know, I want to come to learn. I've done theater because Jessica knew we used to do what is called ambush theater. So Jessica say, yeah, I'm into theater. I've studied. I want to come work with you in your theater and also listen to the community. So anyway, I took that email. I printed it. That's after, I don't know, two months. She wrote back again. She's not giving up on me, on coming. So I went to a cabinet. We, ah, it was a beautiful organization. Grassroot. And I say to the head of theater, I say, this is crazy lady. <laughs> what do you think? Why can't you just come and help us to note, you know, so that we can be writing our things, our stuff, if that's what she's good at. So anyway, so Jessica came, and uh, that's how we met. And Jessica was doing a good job, but one day, Jessica moved to my 10 by 10 room with her bag. 
And I'm like, what are you doing here? No, no, no. I come here Kennedy because I don't feel comfortable working with the community and still going away. You know, I want to be with you in this house, with this shanty room, whatever. So that's how Jessica and I met. And I remember what happened is that uh, she got sick of malaria and uh, she was very, very sick. And for me, we don't go to, when you're sick, we don't go to hostels, you know. And the only hostel that I know was called Kenyatta Hostel, which is for me, as a kid, that place you go, you don't come back. So I started calling around, where is the hostel for rich people? <laughs> you know what I mean? I asked my friend, where, where do the rich people go when they're sick? And they said, Nairobi Hostel, you know, and uh, we organize, we take her there. And she was very, very skinny, I remember well. And I knew she going to die. So the following day, I went to see her. And I'm like, Kennedy, as an African man, we, you have to say the truth that you love her. So she dies knowing that you loved her. Okay? So one day I went there, I walked to the hostel, and I said, Jessica, I love you. And I ran back to Kibera because I thought she was going to die. Anyway, you know, and I wanted to know that she dies knowing that this guy was hiding the love, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I met Jessica, and she became part of this movement. Uh, yeah, for a long time, you know. So that's the that's the story of Jessica. And she's uh, she's amazing. We have three children now: twins and one girl, three years old and three years old boy, and uh, and the uh, last one, uh, twenty one months. God bless you all. And, and what you said as well, like in that in that experience of you know even a, a hospital visit um, is something in which uh, in those deep inequalities. Um, can be a potential death sentence. And, you know, the work that you're doing at Shofco, particularly over the pandemic, uh, has really been to, uh, to help counter some of those inequalities that exist in the slums and communities. And I wonder whether you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, in this time of the pandemic, you know, what steps have you taken at Shofco um, to protect the community um, and to really work to alleviate some of those inequalities that existed around healthcare? COVID really exposed the reality of the inequality that exists. And it really makes me so sad that the world really don't care about poor people. They say, but really, no. What is the issue? Stay in your room, <laughs> wash your hand with clean water, stay away from people. Let's, who, and 50% of the world or 60% are people who are struggling. So you tell me you live in a Kibera slum, whereby population is very high. You live in a 10 by 10 room. You have no fridge. Huh? Are you really making policies for the poor? So government asked me to join a, a COVID tax force and then to lead the community, uh, community initiatives. And, you know, and that's when we were able to say that we have to change the package of how we talk about this COVID. For example, I remember one of the women I met in Kibera and I, she was not wearing a mask. She doesn't care. I'm like, Where's your mask? She said, Kennedy, mask was going for a dollar by then. Should I choose to buy food for my children or to wear a mask? I better die from COVID than to die from hunger. And that really hit me so hard. So what we did was that uh, these people are living from hand to mouth. So we were able to look for partners and send money to the most vulnerable on their phone. So they can also have the, they can buy what they want to buy food. I mean, and then we set up hand washing station you know, in the main entrance of the communities. And honestly, we did that in, in over 15 slums in Kenya. And it's powerful. And we use the community leaders to be the one talking about COVID. COVID really came from, you know, those of they were right, those who were able to travel around the world. Eh? And those who are now living under $2 a day have now to deal with it. And there was no plan. I mean, 
And uh, yeah, I'm very happy we were able to have some, we, we served over 2.5 million people who were really able to wash their hands, able to, to feed and just to pass information around. And so many of these topics you spoke about on the panel at Expo 2020's uh, Inclusive Cities events. Uh, you also moderated many of those panels. And I'm wondering, listening to a lot of the discussions that have happened so far at Expo 2020, um, what do you think of Expo's mission to convene these kinds of leaders, experts, uh, grassroots communities around transforming the way that we inclusively build, move, and live in habitats of the future? No, honestly, what really happened that I really loved about the Expo, uh, Expo 2020 Dubai, it, the, first of all, for me, it was a powerful thing because you think about Expo, you think of countries, you know what I mean, or big companies, you know? But today, talk about the people on the planet. That for me was wow. And what was powerful about it, if you ask me, is this idea of they were not the same people in the room. We have architectures. Uh, city planners, and we have com- musicians, and we have committee organizers. You know what I mean? And it was really, really engaging. You know what I mean? To bring all these people together, that is how you build inclusive city. You know what I mean? Cities. You know what I mean? No, I see city as breathing, with feeling. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, like as I walk in Dubai here, when I look at this city. I see how city connect. When I look around the city, I saw the job creation. You know, I'm not kidding you. The jobs that have been created. So whoever was coming, this planning really had that people center. Like, okay, in this city, it'll be sustainable. You know what I mean? So I felt uh, I felt being here was very powerful as to talk to the city planners and me to bring my ex- life experience on the table. You know what I mean? And that has been my dream. My dream has been we don't have just to speak in the slums. We also have to be on the table with the policymakers. And that really happened here. And they were, and we all agree, which is amazing. We all agree that the people-centered approach is what is important. For example, remember Kibera, there's a place women used to be harassed and raped. Why? There's nobody thinking about this, the light, street lights. When the street was put in that area, women were safe. You know what I mean? But how do you know that? Just by listening to the girls and women. You know? It was beautiful to talk about inclusive cities. And I think what the UN Habitat and the partners and also working with grassroots leaders like us, what we can achieve and using uh, existing examples can be very powerful. And let's not forget in 2050, almost over 70% of the population will live in urban centers. What does that mean? Like my parents. So we have to start now. Otherwise, it will be really a challenge. You talked about where we need to go in the future, and I'm wondering, what's the starting point today? So after particularly COVID-19 and we're in the middle of that pandemic, how has that helped or hindered progress on inclusive cities? We have to be accept the truth. We are more behind. You know what I mean? But also at the same time, we have to appreciate that COVID is terrible, but it also shows the truth. For us to succeed, we need more investment. Okay, at the same time, we need the local voices. Let's work with them. You know, let's design their spaces. So the roadmap that they are taking, which they told me, and I saw it, is which is human-centered community approach will really make the world a better place. I want to switch gears a little bit because you talked about the white savior complex, and you've also spoken and written very powerfully on the topic of 
racial barriers that African-led NGOs experience. And Shovkov also launched the inaugural World Communities Forum this year, which tried to flip the dynamics of traditional high-level events from the global elite to grassroots communities. And I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the barriers that still exist today uh, racially um, in terms of also post-colonial or colonial, indeed, uh, mindsets of what needs to change? I am one of the founders of Shovko uh, in the slum. Some of the money come from the West, honestly, you mean? And they have their own playbook that many African nonprofit uh, or entrepreneurs don't know it, you know what I mean? And there's a lot of uh, racial discrimination you know, that happen. I face it a lot. And then you realize that it's all that, uh, that colonial mentality. I want to help you. When I'm helping you, you don't do anything. Whatever I give you, you take, and you say thank you. That's colonial, you know? Hey, you know what I mean? There is a, so what I'm really talking about uh, here is, uh, what about partnership? I'm not saying no to anybody from outside. What we are saying is that, please, respect us. You might be coming with your education, but don't forget people in this community also have PhD of life experience. Yeah, that you don't have, okay? So, and nothing is for free. You are also coming here, you have to learn. You With your money, you cannot do anything, you know? You need us to. So we also, let's have a same seat on the table. Let's talk at partners. Another person happened to me, is an amazing story here is, so when do I met these people? We were, we were literally Kibera. Hey, you don't have toilets. I'm saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And, oh, I want to build a toilet. You know what they did for us? They built a high classic toilet, my friend. Hey, big, what? With, hey, with some water. One of the local leaders says, this is my house. And that was I turned to a house <laughs> up to now. <laughs> and I can see this for going like, oh, we built a toilet in Kibera. We built it. I'm sorry. You built a house for one person who was a leader. <laughs> you see? So I, what I'm talking about is that we have to really understand that uh, and the dynamic and understand who you are. You're coming from a powerful country. You're coming from this community. Respect them. What I'm asking for is called in dignity. Dignity, dignity. Are you treating local partners with dignity as you, treat, as you could treat other foundations? And, and what do you think international donors and policymakers need to do today to empower dignity and decision-making at the local and community-led uh, you know, level? Uh, rather than also large NGOs? Yeah, I think they have to change their game. You know, you cannot come up with a complicated style with the same way American people applying for the same thing. So let's be, let's be conscious. You know what I mean? Right now, development is a culture, okay? The way it's done in the London or in the US, this way. And they are putting us on the same place on the data, the matrix. You know what I mean? Understand you are here, there is this community. I want to build a library in this community, okay? Who do I talk to? Okay, there's more than data, okay? Uh, how can they report that? Maybe you don't even have a computer in the community. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you are told to reply, write responses every week. That's work for for America, you know, whereby computers are there. You know what I mean? So they have to understand that for, to fight poverty or to do anything, you need to understand the dynamic, the culture of the community you are working with. And you have to know that, uh, you, have, you also have to know that uh, they are also important. 
You know I mean, we have to remove this uh, savior complex. You know what I mean, because when I'm saving you, I don't care about you. I'm saving you. Look at that word. I'm saving you. You are tiny. You are useless. But when you are a partner, let's sit down. Why can't we co-design programs together? That would be the best thing to do. And I think that's what we discussed with the UN Habitat. They are really working on, you know, on how to co-create. I mean, you cannot create something for me in London, in New York, in Los Angeles. Will not work. There's a story of uh, in uh, Amakoko. It's a slum in uh, Nigeria. So I saw their whole school was floating on water. Amazing. I was like, hey, Kennedy, some people came from a very, very big university. <laughs> okay? In the US. I won't say the name of the university. Okay? <laughs> and they were trying to build a school with technology. I'm like, yeah. Do you know what happened, Kennedy? Their school sink with all their PhD. And ours is still there. You know what I mean? And I'm like, wow! These stupid people, they could just come and ask. How is your school floating? And how can we make it bigger? So it's very important to always listen. Real listening. That's how we'll fight poverty. By listening and understanding the situation on the ground. As we wrap up, um, I'll also share, we read in a 2009 blog post, uh, a 25-year-old Kennedy wrote these words, which was, I woke up a happy man and my heart was pumping with the words, I never gave up. This was the energy that kept me going throughout the whole day. So as a final question for our younger listeners who may be hearing you today and, and maybe on the verge of giving up, what is your advice to them? There is something here I've learned in my life. And I think young people have to learn about this too. You know what I mean? I believe that there is no challenge that will be allowed to come your way that you cannot handle. And then I also believe that there is two in one in us. One that tells you like, ah, give up, give up. They, they, you know what? I don't know if I'm crazy, but there's two, I have two voices. I don't know about other people, other young people. But like, you know, don't give up, don't give up, you know? And right now, young people, we are faced by bigger challenge, which is mental health. And social media, is also part of that. People are showing you 5% of good life, okay? And they are hiding for you 95%. And as a young person, you look at that like, oh, look at that, oh, look at my life. No, 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 no. Every moment in life that you think you are giving up, just remind yourself, what is your purpose of living? Is it to give up? Yeah. You will never figure out things quickly. I don't think I knew I'd be who I am today. You know what I mean? But let's keep on trying. So when I was feeling lonely and hopeless, and I could see the earth as a ball, and the sun was that hope, the end of the tunnel, you know, that light you see. And I'm like, Kennedy, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to eat. Life is too tough. Should I give up? There's a moment I fell off taking away my life. But every time I remember that day, the ball, the earth, is going round. It's going round. It's going round. It's going round. And the sunlight is going to come. You know what I mean? And I knew that, Kennedy, you will never be in this hard situation forever. The, you know, it goes around the clock. You know, tick, tick. The sun is going, you know, and the sun is there. Just, the sun is there, you know. The earth is just turning, Kennedy, turning, you know. And then you see the light. So my friend, any young person listen to this, 
whatever you're going through, the sun is coming. The earth is rotating around the sun. And every time, and every, even me now, every time I'm happy, I see the sun, I still know like Kennedy, Kennedy, remember, is now the lifetime of the sun. Anything can happen, but never forget, it will come back. <laughs> anyway, so that's my message for young people. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Kennedy. And you are the sun in so many people's lives. And you've said before that when people meet you, they can't believe you're Kennedy Odede because you're not uh, Kennedy Odede enough. And because you're a simple and ordinary man in your words. Uh, but listening to you today, I wish that every human being was as simple, as ordinary, as brilliant, as committed to service as you are. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time, Asante. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Asante. <laughs> Keep in touch. People and Planet is an official podcast of Expo 2020 Dubai, creating a sustainable future for our planet together. Learn more by visiting virtualexpodubai.com or searching Program for People and Planet. People and Planet is produced by Kerning Cultures Network. Episodes are released every second Monday. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your friends and leave us a review.